Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. This is the first in a series of programs that the National Committee is starting, which is going to be called China on the Hill, and it's going to feature speakers from the Hill to talk to our members and our and our audience. Uh, this is to supplement a new publication which we have started, which is called China on the Hill, which follows the developments with respect to China on Capitol Hill, and we could find no one better to start this than. I guess it's fair to call you my old friend Rick Larson, um, who is now in his eleventh term representing the second congressional district in Washington State.、Uh, I have had the pleasure, I would say, the honor of accompanying him eight times、uh, to China. He has recently come out with a white paper on China, which is an absolute must-read for everyone on this call. We should post the link to it. Uh, in the chat,、uh, but it is clear, it is concise, it is wise.、Uh, it is not necessarily in the center of where the consensus on China is, but it is an absolute、uh, must-read because it lays out a path of where we think,、uh, where Congressman Larson thinks we should go on China. I mean, I'm proud to call. Uh, Congressman Larson, a friend, I'm proud to have gone with him、um, to China that many times. And I first met him when he, along along with、uh, Congressman Kirk, created the U.S.-China Working Group, where he has remained as chairman over these 15 years.、Uh, but let me turn it over to Congressman Larson for a few comments on the new white paper to start it off. Then I'll ask some questions. Then I encourage. The audience, which is quite numerous this morning, to use the Q and A function to ask questions of Congressman Mar- Larson. I'm sure I will slip up and call him Rick in the course of this this、uh, this meeting. But thank you so much for all you do. Thank you for your public service. Thank you for writing this white paper because it's really something that needed to be done, and you did it. <laughs> thanks, thanks. I will also.、Uh... Uh, commend、uh, Jay Z Golden from my staff and,、uh, and numerous others、um, who helped、uh, help put it together and、uh, and for people who reviewed it.、Um, but as I say,、um, uh, it's I'll take responsibility for the errors、um, as well. But thanks, Steve, so much for the、uh, invitation. So just a, a, a the ebb and flow of Capitol Hill. I'm in between votes right now, so、uh, we have two more votes to take. And、uh, there's someone in the room with me to、um, tell me when it's time for me to go. But I, I mean, I, I'm a, you know, it'll be like a, a 90 second break. I'll have to go vote and come back just to give people a heads up. So that's the flavor of the job as well. But thanks, Steve, for the introduction, and thanks to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations for an opportunity to、um, talk to you about a very topical uh, subject uh, these days, and that's the U.S.-China relationship, and it's.、Uh, It's it's uh, uh, not just topical because of the Olympics, and it's not just topical because of trade, and it's not just topical because of、uh, debate at the United Nations about China's、um, positions on another 
topical issue of Russia, Ukraine. Um, it's topical because of all those things, but also I think it's important to think past just today and be thinking about tomorrow and the next days and the next years about where the US-China relationship is headed. And that's the genesis of the white paper. Um, really, as Steve said, I'm Rick Larson from Washington State Second District. For those who don't know uh, where that district is, um, it's north of Seattle. It does not include any of Seattle, but it goes uh, to the, up to the Canadian border, just to give you a flavor of the geography in Washington State. And I serve as co-chair of the U.S.-China Working Group, a group that I started in 2005 with Representative Mark Kirk from Illinois. Um, the idea was for House members to think about how we can build relationships uh, and gain information about the U.S.-China relationship. They get more members of Congress and their staffs to uh, meet, to discuss, to learn about China and the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, now I work with my co-chair, Darren LaHood, Representative LaHood, also from Illinois. Um, I've been with uh, Steve eight times to China. I've gone to China three other times, uh, twice on what we call CODELs and once with the Aspen Institute. So 11 times, uh, the most recent time was in 2019, not surprisingly, we haven't been back since um, as members of Congress. Um, but uh, I would note that within the US-China Working Group and within Congress generally, members have very diverse views on the bilateral relationship. Generally, they share a perspective that engagement and dialogue are essential to achieve US policy goals. But I would also note that there is a broad consensus in Congress that China is a, a, a strategic competitor uh, that is, the U.S. and China have divergent uh, goals about how each country uh, and the governments see themselves in the world, and there is a, a likely event of those divergent goals running into each other. I, I would say conflict, but I don't want people to think of armed conflict, um, uh, but just that those, how we achieve those goals, how we approach those goals uh, could end up... Um, again, having the U.S. and China bump into each other. And, and there's plenty of examples of that happening in the world today. But Congress sees U.S. leadership, in my view, Congress sees U.S. leadership in technology and human rights protection as central to U.S. values, national security, and prosperity. And that consensus view makes engagement with China challenging, and it makes the Chinese Communist Party economic policies, human rights violations, and its own vision of, of China's role in the international uh, world, uh, it makes constructive engagement uh, that much more difficult. Uh, as I see it, and some of you, this is, in the white, this is in the white paper, and I've been using this rubric for a while, um, members of Congress sort of fall into three categories, um, how they respond to these challenges, uh, the punishers who seek to harm China. So think about the folks who wanted a full boycott of the US Olympics. That, that think of that kind of group. The decouplers uh, who wish to sever the economic relationship with China altogether um, or in part, in major parts. Um, and think of, uh, don't think only of the, like the pharmaceutical supply chain or healthcare supply chain, think bigger and broader than that. Um, and then there's salvagers uh, like myself, uh, I think who view engagement with China as necessary to achieve our own goals, not China's goals, but US policy goals. And I think these first two approaches are more prevalent in this administration and in Congress and, and lead to an approach where uh, we're going to be vocal and public and firm uh, about our approach on China-related issues. Um, 
this relationship has resulted in costs uh, to the US, especially in trade. Just to give you an idea, in my district alone, uh, exports to China fell from $7.1 billion in 2018 to $900 million um, in 2020, driven by a decline in aerospace exports. We build a lot of airplanes in my district. And, uh, and this is according to the US-China Business Council's district export report. So loss of export opportunities have real consequences for jobs, have real consequences for innovation, and so on. But that's just one, one indicator. So my white paper that, um, recent, that I recently released calls for elected officials to think more broadly and more cohesively about a, 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 a U.S.-China agenda. So instead of a purely confrontational approach, and I won't shy away from saying that in the white paper, there, there are some approaches that are confrontational, but they're done within a context of a broader approach. Um, I'm outlining a strategy that focuses largely on U.S. competitiveness. It's clear eye to think about the challenges that the, that the Chinese government poses to the United States. It provides over 100 policy recommendations for Congress and the administration. I won't take, uh, I'll take credit for putting all of them in, um, but they're not all my ideas. So there's, again, a lot of good ideas from a lot of good people. Uh, but I do support a comprehensive strategy around four guiding principles, uh, recognizing there are existing areas of conflict and competition, just calling things what they are, uh, updating the U.S. playbook to include offensive and defensive measures to better compete globally uh, and to compete with uh, China, identifying areas where bilater bilateral cooperation exists and is necessary, um, though it might be difficult. It's certainly in both nations' interests climate change, global health, security in Northeast Asia, and getting our own house in order, uh, bolstering economic recovery in the United States and protecting and promote, promoting voting rights. And I really wanna underscore this voting rights argument because Chinese media and Chinese leadership have recently tried to promote the idea of China as a democracy. That is a ridiculous assertion, but the US case is not helped when states and elected officials in our own country work to suppress access to the ballot box. So um, we need to, again, make sure we are sending the right messages in order to bolster our case on a variety of issues. So my proposal also places a larger focus on domestic investments, education, and multilateral relationships to enhance US competitiveness, not just vis-a-vis -vis China, but worldwide. A big development since we um, republished the paper um, is that the US House uh, took decisive action on a broad agenda to boost U.S. global competitiveness with the passage of the America Competes Act last Friday. Now, the America Competes Act complements uh, already bold investments that we've made uh, through the bipartisan infrastructure law that we passed last year and was signed into law in November. So that opportunities created at home helped strengthen the U.S. abroad. And as the chair of the subcommittee on Asia in the House Foreign Affairs Committee said, uh, and this is Ami Berra, he said, to win the 21st century and compete with China, we must invest in ourselves. And the American Competes Act addresses a lot of priorities to elevate American capacity and global leadership on U.S. manufacturing. The bill accelerates U.S. manufacturing and creates well-paying jobs through investments in semiconductors, STEM education, and apprenticeships. On technology leadership, the bill invests in U.S. technology leadership in important fields such as artificial intelligence, fusion energy, and quantum information science. On U.S. diplomacy, the bill advances cooperation within the Quad, supports ASEAN, increases development finance corporation financing, and pushes for more U.S. citizens to find employment in international organizations. And on human rights, the bill calls for working with Indo-Pacific allies to protect human rights in the region. 
creates a new special envoy for Xinjiang at the Department of State and imposes sanctions for coercive abortion and rape abuses by officials in Xinjiang and designates priority to refugee status for, for Uyghurs. So these provisions, this approach generally is consistent with the strategy I detailed in the white paper. And using as the white paper as a guide, there are three amendments that are in the bill that, um, I, that I personally propose. First amendment, it exempts residents of Xinjiang from the annual US refugee admission cap, it restoring US leadership on human rights, ensuring that we create opportunities for Uyghur refugees that it doesn't harm other vulnerable refugee groups. It prioritizes US International Development Finance Corporation or DFC financing of digital infrastructure projects worldwide as one way to compete with China's Belt Road Initiative projects. And along with Representative Don Beyer of Virginia, it restores Fulbright exchanges with China to build US expertise on China, strengthen people-to-people -people ties and give Chinese participants a chance to experience what true academic freedom is. So as the House moves to conference, the American Competes Act um, will conference, we will conference that with the Senate passed USICA, uh, and I'll certainly push to include my amendments in the final version, uh, but uh, we, we should expect the uh, House and the Senate to conference on the two bills uh, with the idea that is sent to President Biden's desk um, for, uh, for uh, to sign into law. We still have more to do, like joining the CTPPP, which I support, passing Build Back Better, I support some version of that, um, and expanding and protecting uh, voting rights. So I'll continue to promote my strategy to colleagues uh, in Congress and to all of you who are critical stakeholders in this bilateral relationship. Uh, the US-China relationship is complex. I've always said it's not one relationship, it is actually many relationships. Uh, greater nuance and understanding is needed. So I encourage you to share your, your perspectives with your own elected officials. Um, and I look forward to answering your questions, uh, any that you may have for me. So with that, Steve, I'll turn it over to you. It's okay, we'll have Jay-Z come on and talk about some staff issues. Sure, we'll do that. I'll be right back, folks, thanks. Great, so we've got, we knew this was gonna happen. So we've got uh, Jay-Z Golden, who is uh, Congressman Larson's legislative director and is co-director, co-staff director of the US-China Working Group. Uh, so Jay-Z, thank you. Thank you for joining us and thank you for, for stepping in. Talk, you know, talk a little bit about how you coordinate among staff uh, on the Hill with respect to China and talk about how much contact you have with the, um, the Chinese government in terms of interacting with the embassy or others back in Beijing. Sure, yeah. Thanks for that, Steve. I'm happy to briefly pinch it while Representative Larson's fulfilling his constitutional duties. The U.S.-China uh, US Working Group uh, is, really, is really focused on opportunities and events uh, for members uh, and for staff. And so to the extent that this education mission uh, is, is foundational, I work with my co-chair, Mary, Mary Ellen Richardson from Representative LaHood's office on scheduling events, briefings, discussions on topics of interest for members and staff. And that, that's driven largely by the staff who know their own members' priorities uh, as well as anyone does. To the, Steve, to the second part of your uh, question about interactions with the um, Chinese government, either in, in Beijing or, or via the embassy, uh, you know, those opportunities exist. Um, 
I, I'm not sure I've been doing it long enough to have sort of a sense of, of how it compares to those opportunities in the past, although the frequency, although I know COVID has obviously been a challenge, there are, um, you know, there, there have been opportunities during, during the pandemic for uh, virtual staff delegations uh, that, that, as you know, as, as some of uh, some other organizations that work in this space have put on, uh, and those are those are opportunities to talk not just with um, Chinese government officials but other other stakeholders on the ground um, in in China. Uh, those have been really critical to um, I won't necessarily say building, but but maintaining ties and making sure that they don't atrophy because of. Um, yeah, and uh, I see in, in the white paper, uh, Congressman Larson calls for a, revoke, a revocation of the prohibition on mutual education and cultural exchange act delegations going to China, which of course would allow for staff when the COVID restrictions are over to go to China, which is something which we, we obviously at the committee think is important for continued interaction. Uh, so we've got Congressman Larson back. So thanks for stepping in, Jay-Z. Um, you mentioned CPTPP, and you were, you were kind of interested in, in, you're one of the few who stands up and say, we should, we should rejoin. So two questions with respect to that. One is how realistic, what would it take in the Congress for that to happen? You, you say about trade promotion authority, uh, is that just a Senate function or is that a Senate and House function? And second, what slightly surprised me about the white paper, where you know I agree with virtually everything in it, but you did not call for an ending of the Trump administration era tariffs. Um, and I yeah, and, and um, go ahead. Sure. So that doesn't mean I don't 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 support the end of those. So just to, if I can try to give some perspective on the trade issue. Uh, th this is my perspective and my read of the uh, Biden administration's approach. This is my, my read. This is not um, from uh, this is not from the mountaintop. This is just my read on things um, that that um, moving more aggressively on a, on a trade, either trade agreements or uh, trade issues really does depend upon a foundation that invests in the um, domestic infrastructure in the United States. In other words, I think for the Biden administration to come out more aggressively on uh, um, an outfacing um, approach uh, on trade, that they need to be sure we're taking care of things here in the US. That's why in part why the bipartisan infrastructure law passage was so critical. You know, check the box on that. We're investing in, in, um, in, the, in the infrastructure. Uh, the uh, the competes act would be part of this um, as well. That's the investment sort of in the foundational <clears throat> basic research, um, attacking the supply chain problems and so on. Uh, we haven't yet done the appropriations bills for FY22, but that looks like we're on our way to doing that and getting that done by uh, by March 11th now. And then finally, there's the Build Back Better, with, uh, which we passed in the House, but probably will be very different coming back from the Senate, but it's still alive. It'll just be very, a very different animal. But, um, you know, so that if you get all those things done, then you've got an administration that says, we told you we we're gonna invest in the, here in the United States first, here are the things we did to do that. We're now in a much better position, much stronger position to begin exploring broader trade issues. Now, so that's 
that, that is the important context. Now, what happens after that, if you want to talk particulars, that, that's fine. It's kind of academic, I think, until there's the basic foundation set that the administration sets with these other, with these other things. So um, having said that, calling it academic, I still think um, you know, we, we need to have, we'll have to re-up trade promotion authority. Both House and Senate will have to pass that if we do that. And, um, uh, and, and I still think that still puts us a long way off from the CPTPP, but can we break things down? Can we look at a digital trade agreement? Uh, something that uh, Representative uh, Susan Delbene from Washington State is uh, a big proponent, one of the main proponents, leaders on. But there are, there are ways to you know, take parts of, let's say, the USMCA, um, coupling it with digital trade and, and doing some industry specific, sector specific types of agreements that can kind of, I think, build up to something bigger and broader later. But um, yeah, realistically, we're not jumping into the CPTPP anytime soon. Um, uh, and certainly not before we, I think, and we can again, my read, before we um, take care of the domestic investment side um, first, which frankly, we should be doing. We, we should be doing that first. Yeah. Um, it makes us stronger. So you're saying- but, so as, And as far as tariffs go, yeah, I didn't mention the paper, but again, that, that's sort of a negotiation, you know, that, that's, okay, yeah, let's, I'm for it. I'm for dropping the tariffs, but that's not a long-term long strategic thing in fact, we actually saw the administration make an announcement about uh, tariffs uh, with regards to EU, with regards to Japan, um, just a couple of days ago. So there's there is movement. The administration is starting to whittle away at the, some of these um, uh, some of the um, Trump era tariffs. Yeah. So the, the, the pre obviously it's up to the president that they, we don't need a uh, a passage of a bill. Uh, from the House or the Senate to get no, 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 to reduce the tariffs, but there no, there's, and there's plenty of support for that in Congress too. Um, there's also some opposition, granted, but there's plenty of support. Uh -huh. I love your your punishers, decouplers, salvages. <laughs> does it does it break down also on party lines that more of the of the Republicans or punishers? And more of the Democrats or salvagers, or is it pretty much just across the board? It's split. It is. It is really across the board. You know, the I'd say the old rubric is the national security hawks, the economic hawks, and the human rights hawks. And um, the the analogy I made then was that those those flocks of hawks always flew separately. Um, but even then, there were the national security hawks were kind of more Republicans. The economic hawks were kind of more Democrats. And the human rights hawks were were um, kind of both for different uh, for different reasons, but I didn't think um, it was a very accurate portrayal of how mixed uh, between the two parties um, some of these positions on China have become. So I got so I got to thinking about what 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 would be a different rubric to better bring in, um, you know, to, to better accurately describe. Um, where members, regardless of parties, sit on, on some of these broader issues. And so that's why I did this. And, you know, traveling with me, uh, Steve, you know, I can kind of be a um, um, flip at times. And so, honestly, it, I think it took a very flip mind to come up with this kind of rubric a little bit. Um, but it's also, but I also think it's, it's, it's a more accurate way to, to, you know, stovepipe members and how to think about it, because it, it takes into account the mixing of the 
of party members um, and, and truly recognizes that it's not, this is not party based. That's why I wanna be really clear that the consensus in Congress is one where um, uh, China is seen as a strategic competitor. It's not a consensus among Democrats or Republicans. It's, it's a congressional, uh, largely congressional um, consensus. And the, and the Hawks analogy just didn't accurately describe that. Yeah. What happens now, now the America Competes Act? What what's the process now for that becoming law? Yeah, uh, oh, I'm glad you asked it that way. You, because when the Senate passed USICA, people would always ask me, when is the Senate USICA going to become law? And I always say, when, when the House gets its hands on it, that's when it's going to become law. Um, people, yeah. You've taught me a lot about the difference between the House <laughs> and the Senate. My constitutional law professors at, at law school didn't teach me nearly enough, but you certainly have been a great yeah. teacher. Yeah, I certainly uh, could learn more about constitutional law, but I, I think the opposite is true as well. Um, uh, yeah, so the Senate, I mean, the House did pass Competes Act, and it is largely a bill that, um, you know, we, we put together. So the whole time that the Senate was working to put together USICA, the House was in fact working as well on its version. The, the institutionally, the Senate couldn't do this within its committees because of the 60 vote rule. So essentially the four of the Senate acted as, as its committee to put together USICA. Now the, the House is different because we don't have a 60 vote rule. We got a 50 plus one rule on the floor. So our, we can actually do committee work. And so what we were doing in the committees at the same time Senate was working on USICA was bills like the Eagle Act was going through the um, House Foreign Affairs Committee. And that's largely the diplomacy part. The um, National Security National Security um, NSF, National Security Foundation, right? Yeah, National Security Foundation for the Future, NSF for the Future Act, the Department of Energy for the Future Act went through sub subsequent committees. And those were parts, smaller parts of USICA, but they went through separately. So these bills kind of traveled separately through the House committee process. And that's that's why you know it was different. So that, but I will say this: we did pass a bill, so we have a firm House position now. And there are plenty of similarities between the two bills. They're just two very long bills, but there are plenty of similarities between the bills. So we, so now we go to conference, and that's either going to happen one or two ways. It's the class, classic, you know, um, I'm just a bill uh, cartoon conference committee where we actually appoint committees, a conference committee, and the House and the Senate sit together and, and, and hash out differences. Um, the other way is that the House and Senate leadership with the subsequent members of the subcommittees that have pieces of this of these bills, we, we kind of hash it out and then it emerges um, and, and then we vote on it. Um, it's, and it's still called a conference, but it's not sort of the classic conference. Uh, so it's one or two ways, but uh, you know, the administration's really attuned to this bill as well. And so um, you, they want to see something happen as well. So you've got both the House in the Senate, in the, in the, in the legislative, and the executive branch um, as well, all engaged in wanting to make something happen. So that, that just, that increases the likelihood of things happening. This is the priority, and it does a lot of things, including the CHIPS Act, which a lot of, a lot of folks, and maybe some of the listeners today and watch today, a lot of folks will just see this as the one way to get the CHIPS Act done. It is the one way to get the CHIPS Act done, but this is a bill larger than semiconductors, but it does include semiconductors. One of the 
audience members asked that, you know, the, the America competes bill is not only about competing with China in terms of economy, technology, supply chain, but it's about confronting China in terms of policy, politics, security, ideology, especially on the sensitive issue of Taiwan. There's a lot of pro-Taiwan content, such as changing the name of Taiwan's representative office in the U.S. Are you concerned that this may increase the risk of conflict in the Taiwan Straits? Well, I disagree with the premise of the question. Um, if you look at um, uh, one section of the bill, uh, then you can, you know, it's like um, being blindfolded and touching an elephant. Uh, you know, if you only choose to look at one part of the bill or you only choose to touch one part of the elephant, you may not, you may think it is something else. Um, this is a very large bill with a lot of, a lot of elements to it including the diplomatic element, including an economic competitiveness element, including technology element. Uh, many parts have nothing to do at all with China. Uh, most of this bill has nothing to do with China. It uh, has most, mostly to do uh, with investing in uh, US competitiveness. Um, and so that we are competitive uh, with other countries making the same kinds of investments that include China. Frankly, it includes France. <laughs> um, it includes the, the UK, uh, it includes any number of countries that are doing these same kinds of things. Um, so uh, so I, I just want to, I want to be really clear about that. Um, it is, this is a bill that's bigger than US-China relationship, but it is, but again, it partly is that. Um, and do I, am I concerned about uh, the um, uh, Chinese uh, government response to uh, the portions on China. I think that um, that's probably, a, a, it's irrelevant what I think. It's certainly what the will of the House is right now. And we'll see what happens when the bill comes out of conference, what those provisions, um, provisions look like. Um, my guess is that uh, it was going, it, it could raise the temperature between US and China when it comes to Taiwan. Uh, but um, I think it, it, in the US, uh, it's certainly in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. House, and probably in the U.S. Senate as well, um, there would be those who argue that China does a, a perfectly good enough job raising the temperature on Taiwan issues, uh, and it, you know, and, and the and the U.S. and U.S. action uh, isn't really raising temperatures all that more um, more than they've already been raised. How has the executive branch responded to your white paper? Is there much distance between you and the Biden administration on what you're you're proposing? Uh, to be clear, I, I want to be. I don't want to characterize the Biden administration's um, responses anything. They haven't responded to my white paper um, in any official manner. Uh, I do think that that um, in my discussions with uh, with um, some no, um, some Biden administration folks, they they are they're leading with the tougher on China approach um, uh, without really talking uh, about um, the areas where we do need to cooperate. On the other hand, there are reasons why Wendy Sherman goes to China. There are reasons why John Kerry goes um, to China. There are reasons why the National Security um, Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has conversations with his counterparts and, and and, uh, and Secretary Blinken has conversations. Those, those conversations don't have to be positive all the time, but there is an engagement approach with regards to China, because we do recognize, the US does recognize uh, uh, the, the Chinese government, the country of China is an important country. It's a large country. 
we have we have com we have common interests. We have different ways of getting there, <clears throat> and we have differences as well, and that requires engagement. So I don't, I don't think my um, as a whole, I think my approach is in line. There may be individual parts that uh, there's there are differences as well. But uh, you know, as, as I as I tell you, I, I'm Article One of the Constitution. I'm in the legislative <laughs> side, not the executive branch. Yes, I don't work for the Biden. I've learned I don't, that. Work, I, don't, I don't work for the Biden administration. I work for the Second District of Washington State. So. The um, the white paper states unequivocally, uh, it does. Uh, China does not seek to export communist rule. You think that view is shared by by most of your colleagues in the House? Uh, it's no. somewhat, uh, you know, it's it's, no, it's I, I don't. which I think is quite clear in all of our meetings with Chinese government officials. I mean, they're worried about what's going on within China. To the extent you affect what's going on within China, they're going to object, but they're not seeking oh, can I, to, can I, can to I, export I, their I got, rule. I, I got the premise of the question. I, I don't think they are, want to export communist rule. I think they want to export control that allows the Chinese Communist Party to have more control in China. I think they want. Uh, I think that that what they want to export is um, less uh, an ideology like communism, and, and and if you could say surveillance and control is an ideology, they want to do. You know, they, they want to have friends who will leave them alone. I think that's what the that's what the Chinese Communist Party wants. Um, that won't question their actions otherwise. That will still that will be friends that are open to uh, investment of. Of, uh, of the yuan and and, uh, and a bri without asking them questions about what's going on in china i think that's what they want and I, it, so i i think we need this um if you hear the buzzer that's the other vote i i, I just think that it, it still requires i think a policy response from us but to say that they're trying to export communist um rule like 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 the soviet union did like literally did uh, I don't think that the analogy is the same at all, um, but I do think there is. It doesn't mean, but you know, the the world's choices are not. You know, the world's choices in the in the 70s and 80s might have been communism or capitalism. Those aren't the choices. There are many more choices that countries can make today, and um, and authoritarianism or control and surveillance um, are a set of those choices that countries can make. And I think, uh, in my view, this is my view that um, uh, it may not be ideology, but it doesn't mean it's uh, the, op the opposite of a bad ide ideology isn't a good ideology uh, today in, in 2022. It could be any number of things in between. And uh, I think we need to be um, more nuanced about it, which then drives policy choices. The um, white paper states, once again, very clearly, policymakers must be careful not to jeopardize the free and open academic model that has made the United States the global leader in education and research. That kind of brought to mind, to me, the China Initiative, uh, the Department of Justice's China Initiative, which seems to have discouraged Chinese academics from coming to the United States and somewhat put our, our, our federal government in a rather uh, difficult position. Where do you stand on the China Initiative? Uh, I think that uh, it's it's failing to do what the, the department wanted it to do, which is um, you know, ferret out uh, ferret out um, uh, 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 Chinese academics who are doing either stealing research or doing research and sending it back into China or what 
there are examples, there are fewer examples of success than there are examples of what the DOJ is doing. Um, they'll say, go to the website and look. If like, you go to the website and look, there's a lot, the, the website of the China Initiative outlines a lot of things that are still in the process as opposed to having done anything. And they also, you know, last week had a very embarrassing, the federal government had to pull back on a case, very embarrassing, um, because they basically wanted to convict someone of a, uh, of a law that didn't exist, um, is, what, is what the judges found. Um, the point is, other than being totally critical of it, it's, it's I think what I, what I would like to think is that our DOJ can be much more nuanced about this approach, and in part, do we even know that universities understand what is going on? We should not, just because the China Initiative is something that um, I'm against does not mean that there aren't concerns. There are concerns, how do you approach that? And do universities themselves have a, you know, do they have a, what we call, you know, good security hygiene when it comes to um, uh, uh, re research and recruiting folks uh, for academic positions or, teaching what they do with their research and if they don't then shame on the university and they need to tighten things up in that regard and and the doj can play a role along with the department of education play a role to help universities develop good security hygiene to have um, uh, uh, expectations and codes of conduct and yes punishments in place if those are violated uh, but we're not doing we're kind of leading with a punch um, and hitting anything and hopeful something sticks. If you want more things to stick, take fewer punches at the things that you can hit and, and work with the academic community otherwise. But I will say this doesn't let the academic community off, off the hook at all uh, in, my, in my view. They need to um, show uh, better, again, for lack of a better term, better security hygiene and, and, and the DOJ, and, I'll say Homeland Security, I'll throw them in there as well, and, and education, I can all play a part in developing that program um, and, um, and, you know, and lifting up those standards uh, so that it can be a better focus on where there are problems. So, um, and I, I would know, it's, it, um, academic espionage is not, is not isolated to one country. Yeah, well. I, hope, I hope our executive branch and our universities are listening to you. Jay-Z, you want to take the question from, uh, from Sarah? Uh, one of the reasons China's BRI has so far outpaced U.S. investment abroad is BRI's lower costs for target countries, including through labor and material costs. How should the U.S. and allies compete with BRI in that regard? Yeah, thanks, Steve, and, and thanks, Sarah, for that that question. Um, I think I think the question has the answer sort of embedded in it, which is that uh, on cost, it's very difficult for the U.S. to compete uh, with uh, with China on infrastructure projects, digital infrastructure financing, um, because of those labor costs, and also because of issues, uh, labor costs, material costs, and also because of some of the massive subsidies that. Uh, that those Chinese uh, alternatives will be will be benefiting from, and so the ways to compete are first of all just to be in the game. If the strategy is just to 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 warn countries about uh, you know so-called debt trap diplomacy and and urge them to read the fine print, you know I think the countries are doing their due diligence, um, and that that can come off as a little patronizing. 
Instead, the U.S. has to compete on on value, uh, on quality, on sustainment. Uh, some of these projects, you know, are not just build and forget. It they have got long uh, long supply tails, and so saying the U.S. is a committed partner is very appealing. Uh, and we have uh, we have a lot of uh, partners in, in Europe and in Asia who uh, who have long histories in. Uh, in development aid, in, in infrastructure, um, and in finance that we can work with. And to the extent that we can rely on the expertise of our partners without building additional levels of bureaucracy, I think those will be appealing offers. Terrific, thanks. You saved Congressman Larson from having to answer that one. Uh, we've got a great <laughs> question from somebody you know, Tim Stratford, who I think is listening in from Beijing today or maybe he's in Utah, uh, the bilateral relationship, you know, Tim's from Covington and the, and the chamber. Um, oh, yeah. uh, bilateral relationship appears clearly to be in a downward spiral. The US responds to Chinese actions in, in ways that provoke further Chinese actions not welcomed by the US. The narrative in each country about the actions and intentions of the other country is decidedly negative. Is there anything Congress can do to help reverse this trend. Um, that uh, thanks, thanks, Tim. Uh, I think the I think after forty five minutes, you probably can guess my answer. <laughs> Which I don't think I don't think Congress is the place to look for that um, right now, uh, until we can get back into China. Because, like I said, I haven't been there since what has it been May or March two thousand nineteen? I forget exactly the month, yeah. but it was it was it was earlier. 2019, and uh, uh, there's there's been um, I always I always think that there was a, there is a value for um, the National People's Congress and members of Congress to sit down and talk to each other. Other and uh, you know the next time we go back, we'll hopefully have six members of the U.S. House and and. Yeah, I don't expect the conversations between MPC members and, and U.S. Congress to be any different than what the administration to to the Chinese government conversations are. Um, they're a little more freewheeling, I would I would also say, when members of Congress are involved as well. But it, that doesn't mean don't have the conversation, and that's sort of been a point of the U.S.-China Working Group um, this whole time. Uh, is that uh, it, it is to have a conversation, even if it's difficult. So, you know, do you want members of Congress to go to China? It might mess things up. Most most times we don't, um, but um, I don't think ever. I don't think we've ever messed things up. Uh, but you I certainly never have. Okay, thanks. <laughs> personally, um, but I don't think that I don't think that right now that where the consensus in Congress is really lends itself to. Uh, turning to Congress as a, a way to a way to um, soften the blows, if you will. I think it's going to have to be administration to administration to administration, probably president to president, uh, for that matter. Yeah. Thanks, so as man. you know, I strongly believe that your going to China and speaking directly to the Chinese leadership is important in educating the Chinese leadership about what the Congress is thinking and that that channel plays a very important role in education. And it generally doesn't, you know, these are all off the record meetings. It doesn't generally create backlash in what China uh, does. Right, 
Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and, I, it, and for, for all the criticism, I haven't got a lot of criticism. I don't want to say there's a lot, but you know, there's some members who criticize how many times I've gone and that I go at all. And, um, you know, my, my response is always, well, you know, I can be outside the room yelling at the Chinese leaders, or I can be inside the room yelling at Chinese leaders. And I prefer to be inside yelling at them because I don't say anything different outside the room than I say inside the room. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and these other folks who never, you know, they've never confronted uh, anybody um, who's been in the Chinese government or the Congress as, as well. I think that kind of criticism is so unfounded. It means they fundamentally do not understand what goes on when you visit China and directly, you directly raise these issues, which are deeply troubling for for China, but you directly raise them and have that conversation. The idea that we should communicate through the media is is just, you know, seems to me unwise. So I think that criticism. Yeah. Is and I'll just before we go to the next question, I'll just if I underscore, I, I, I just think that when members of Congress go and say these things, it, it, just, it just makes them it, it makes the issues more realistic. Yes. It, it, it's sort of like we're, we're we go there and say, look, we're not fooling. This is a problem. You know, and, and but it's also we get that back <laughs> too from, yeah. from NPC members. Yeah, you, you've gotten lectured. I mean, there's no question you have gotten lectured, but yes, you I go, have. You know, you go yes, directly at it in English, in English a few times. Yes, that's right. But it, it's it's so important that that the Chinese government hear directly and you hear directly from the Chinese government. And I think you're, I mentioned this, I think before you were on the call, but your position with respect to MECA, the Mutual Education and Cultural Exchange Act that the Biden administration should reverse uh, the prohibition on those trips is important because staff needs to go under that, under that banner and uh, have direct discussions with the Chinese uh, government, which is also important. Uh, Deborah Selickson, who I think you also know, uh, has a question for many years, China was clearly the learner in our science relationship. Have you considered that now that China is a peer in many scientific areas, we can learn from them? By assuming bad faith and cutting off a lot of science, have you considered the idea that we may be cutting ourselves off from important science just when we can learn from them? Uh, it's sort of, yeah, it's kind of a little bit of a softball question for me uh, because I would say yes, uh, on, on, but not because it's China. I, I'd say yes, because the, the, the value of scientific educational exchange is that not only you learn from others, but from that, from that legitimate exchange, um, you get to turn the prism and maybe look at your own problems differently, and that results to different solutions and different questions and different problems, and then to different solutions. It's really the, it, it's really the um, uh, crux of innovation, and the so that's why I think it's important. It's not just necessarily because it's we're learning uh, that, that 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 Chinese academia and Chinese scientific leadership is where it is. It is um, because we could learn from that uh, as well, uh, legitimately learn from it. Um, uh, because that is the that's the basic premise of our our innovation society that we have in the United States. Um, so uh, by by blocking that, um, it I think long term um, is going to interfere with ideas that we don't even know are coming. You know, you, you can't predict what I you know what the next big idea is. The next big idea is the one that is next, and it's big and it's an idea. 
that's the next big idea. Um, you know, what you do with it is important and uh, what you do with these capabilities is important. So that's where the premise of my answer really. And we, but even we had this problem in the 2000s, uh, you know, Steve, you know this, we, we visited uh, uh, Joe Chuan Space Launch Facility. Yeah. Look at their uh, um, launch, one of the launch facilities. And um, um, because China was you know, moving forward in space and we had this late nineties um, ban on, on exchanges on, on rocket technology and so on, maybe for good reasons. But the whole idea was we're gonna stop space technology and development in China. Well, it didn't, we didn't. And now we can't do any NASA, CNSA, uh, China National Space Agency or administration uh, cooperation because of the longstanding prohibition and the appropriations bills. Um, somehow that's going to stop China from its space program. It hasn't. And all we wanted to do was develop a, a common docking ring uh, between Russia and US and China, because those are the countries that were really going to send astronauts into space in their own um, vehicle, in, in, you know, in their countries-based vehicles, and having a common docking ring in case you needed it. Not because it was necessary for people to you know, connect their, their vessels and and have a big party in space, but in case you needed to, you know, save someone in space. So having you had a common docking ring, so you had that opportunity and we can't even do that. We couldn't even get traction on that. So just an example of some of the challenges that like even it's ridiculous on its face why we don't do something as simple as that. It doesn't mean handing over the secrets of our space technology to China or anyone else. It just means that, you know, if we call 911, some anyone who can do it could answer in space. How could they remember the movie The Martian, where it was a yeah. Chinese the Chinese spacecraft went was launched to, to save the, the you know who was who was the actor? It was uh, Matt Damon. Yeah, yeah. So it and he was uh, yeah. but but it's that you know obviously it's science fiction, but it's still like that's why you know is that going to happen? I, you know, who knows? Yeah. But yeah, it but was, just but simply put. The concept of cooperation in space, just to be sure that you know we're looking out for the basics of each other, we can compete otherwise. It, that does make sense, but um, yeah. again, yeah, yeah I, remember I remember those discussions, and the Chinese were very receptive. It was, I guess, it was called an O-ring. So literally, o -ring, yeah, yeah, the, the the different spacecrafts could dock. So if somebody was dying in space, the Chinese could launch and, and save them, and it got prohibited. And vice that. versa, for that man. Yeah, yeah. You've been a great champion for the embassy in Beijing. You've always had. I, I have. I have about three minutes. So yeah. Three That's minutes. Right. Okay. Um, how would you reinvigorate the foreign service and and the embassy in Beijing? It's in the white. Well, <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah. Uh, there's you know the long the longer term answer is. Kind of getting at um, getting at what Don Byer, Representative Don Byer, and I put in the in the Competes Act about Fulbright exchanges and so on. And part part of this answer is ensuring that we have the ability uh, here in the United States to have exchanges to build a, a generation, a next generation of of uh, um, Mandarin speaking Foreign Service um, officers and diplomats. Uh, that that's that that's um, critical, and and we'll see what happens with the appropriations bill and where the funding in the appropriations bill is for the State Department for the foreign operations um, portion of the budget. 
and what kind of investments we're going to see in that for recruiting, for moving people around the world. Um, uh, so I will say there are smarter people than me to answer that question uh, in Congress. Um, but uh, if, in fact, we um, see uh, the U.S.-China relationship as one of strategic competition, that doesn't mean the whole premise of my white paper is, uh, is the, I'm sorry, the opposite of the premise of my white paper is we're in strategic competition, therefore we need to pull back as much as possible from China. It's actually, we need to embrace, embrace the US-China relationship. It's not always gonna be positive, that's not the point. Uh, but it means in all aspects, we need to be more aggressive in, in that embracing, in that exchange, um, in, order, in, in order to um, be the sandpaper on the rough edges of what is, of what is a, a, a very uh, important and yet, as Tim noted, very tumultuous relationship right now. Right, you've got to go. I, my, the final question is answered in the paper, which, which talks about why you wrote uh, this white paper so soon after your last white paper, but it talks about the developments over the last <laughs> years. So I will not ask yeah. you that question, not require that you, you answer it, but thank you so much for your service. Thank you for kind of being the educated voice on China and on US-China relations. We deeply appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I would, I would know in conclusion, Steve, thank you for calling me the educated voice. And that's one of the, one of the things in Congress, like based on this white paper, I have colleagues who would say I am very uneducated about China. Um, but again, um, they've never gone. Um, they've, you know. We should, we should um, invite them on our next trip. How's that? I, I've got a list, I have a list. And you know what? And we should let them come back. <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> thanks a lot appreciate it thank you thank you all to the national committee appreciate it for more interviews videos and links to events like this one visit us at www.ncuscr.org